Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we're revisiting a conversation Ann and Nick had last year with Ian Dominguez, portfolio manager of Delta Emerald Ventures, a data science-led investment firm focused on legal cannabis. A veteran of investing in the CPG and grocery spaces, Ian has long held a passion about the ever-changing needs of consumers and bringing those evolving trends to light through data and analytics. Since helping to launch Delta Emerald in July of 2019, Ian and his team have been building a diverse portfolio across the sector, allowing him to gain a detailed understanding and unique insights into the growth potential across the entire cannabis ecosystem. This episode explores Ian's path to the cannabis industry, and we learn more about how his firm evaluates the market and where he sees the greatest opportunities. In addition, we explore the future of the MSO model, how regulations are changing the industry, consumer trends, the future of branding, as well as common misconceptions investors have about legal marijuana. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ian Dominguez of Delta Emerald Ventures. Ian Dominguez, portfolio manager over at Delta Emerald Ventures. Thank you so much for joining the Green Rush today. Um, before we jump into to all the questions Ann and I have for you, um, can you give our listeners just an overview of who you are and what is Delta Emerald Ventures? Sure. So I am a um, investor in the cannabis industry. My background was in consumer investing prior to the cannabis industry. Um, and I'm from Houston, Texas. <laughs> uh, as far as <laughs> what is Delta Emerald, uh, so we're a fund <laughs> dedicated to the cannabis industry. Um, and we, in addition to our day-to-day work of, of finding uh, attractive investment opportunities, maintaining an investment portfolio. We spend a lot of time trying to understand what exactly is going on in the industry. And the way we do that is with an internal data platform that we've been developing for the last couple of years. You mentioned that you um, had had invested in other industries before. So what, you know, our audience um, is made up of a lot of investors, but we haven't actually spoken to a cannabis investor in a while. So what made you make that move from mainstream investing to targeting the cannabis industry? What was that like light bulb moment? Sure. Yeah. So um, maybe I'd start by saying that you could say I've been passionate about the plant since way before I had a professional career. (laughs) Um, But if you had told me at 15 that I would have built a career in cannabis, I would have said that you're out of your mind. Um, My professional career was really focused on investing in the consumer landscape, specifically the consumer packaged good industry and consumer technology. And I was always taught to ask, how are the consumer's expectations changing because of technology? And I was also very lucky because in 2015, my first portfolio manager assigned me to grocery and Amazon. And at the time I was like, (laughs) okay, grocery, boring, Amazon, cool. Um, and, and, and then everything changed when Amazon bought Whole Foods. And that was really a light bulb moment for me because 
I had been studying these two, what I thought were different industries, but it was the light bulb moment of, oh, wow, it is the same consumer that is being uh, impacted or their expectations are being changed by companies like Amazon and their expectations are porting over into like the grocery industry as an example. And, you know, at this same time, cannabis legalization was really taking off. So I saw this same kind of grocery Amazon dynamic could happen in cannabis. And, and it's the same consumer. Yet again, it's the same consumer. So, so then I kind of asked, you know, maybe, maybe I might have perspective that would be valuable to this industry. Wait, and what year did Amazon buy Whole Foods? Uh, I think that was in 2016. Okay. And maybe June. Okay. It just but, feels like it's been forever. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. there are. It really did change. It really did a lot of things. Change the landscape, and and there, you know, you mentioned that um, you've you've your before it was it was CPG tech, um, and you know those those that came that was a light bulb for me because it, it it is the same thing. You know, we are talking cannabis is a CPG product. The the technology side of it, um, when it be it on the the retail side or logistics or grow or whatever, are are so vibrant and so. Um, uh, cutting edge that it just, it just seems like it would be a, a normal kind of jump for you. I guess it looks normal yeah. now, but it probably didn't in 2016. It was, it was exciting. It was, uh, like I said, there was definitely a right place, right time situation, but I was definitely kind of relentless in terms of trying to understand more about what exactly was going on. And, and the first company that kind of um, opened my eyes in a way was Jane Technologies or iHeart Jane. Uh, I developed a relationship with the management team there and uh, liked the opportunity so much that I personally invested in the company, um, and as did some of uh, you know my 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 friends. And uh, that kind of bred uh, a relationship that's still very active and 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 lively even to this day. And uh, from there, you know, I think a lot of other opportunities started to open up. So it's, it's the kind of thing you can't plan, but, but here we are. Yeah. So y'all found Delta Emerald in July, 2019, I believe, you know, obviously the world was a different place at that time. There was, What's you know, COVID? a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's pre, there's pre COVID there, <laughs> there was, um, you know, excitement about where the industry was going and, and, but you know, COVID happens, there's a significant upheaval just to the day-to-day -day lives and to the markets and stuff. So how has, how have you personally seen the industry change from when you guys first launched Delta Emerald to, to where you're sitting at today? Yeah, great question. Um, the Delta and Delta Emerald uh, is meant to signify change. And that's, you know, the one thing you can rely on in this industry is that it will continue to change. I would say that how it's changed in my perspective is that I guess I fall back on this phrase that you can't improve what you don't measure. And uh, if you think about the history of the cannabis industry, by its very nature, you were not uh, smart to measure things accurately. Because if you did, there might be some there's repercussions that would come along the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so there's muscle memory there. And yet at the same time, there's so much opportunity for productivity gains, profitability gains from having better information. So I think we're, we're just seeing the beginnings of this now. You know, there are companies that have proven to be very valuable at certain nodes of the supply chain as it relates to technology and, and, and information specifically. And where I think we're going in the future is that, uh, you know, if, if data is siloed in various buckets, you're going to see an ecosystem start to develop that does a better job of connecting these dots that currently are, are disparate. 
you know, we talked about the the difference in in 2019 to now. Um, you know, I was actually just having this conversation with someone who who didn't know what I did for a living. We were talking about it, and she's like, "Oh my god, the cannabis industry! You guys must be doing great. You guys must be like making a ton of money. You must be, you know, it's it's booming right mm. now." And I'm like, "It's a little more complicated than that." <laughs> um, so, <laughs> how do you see the capital? Um, requests really how has that changed from july to 2019 to like now yeah so there have been ebbs and flows and they're going to continue to be ebbs and flows um there's a, a lot of people want to believe that federal legalization is what what they truly want um and uh, you know, that's been pushed out, obviously. And and each time it seems to be closer, people get more excited. Whenever it gets further away, people are less ebullient. Um, well, I do, I do, I would also add one more thing on uh, 2019 versus today. Um, and, and COVID, I think, as, as we all kind of understand in our day to day lives, has driven a, a lot of upheaval in terms of the way people spend their time. And, uh, you know, when it comes to things like finding cannabis. Uh, there were preferences before whether you like to go in the store or not that were completely taken away from you. And so we had to rely on technology to allow consumers to make better decisions. Whereas uh, for, for a period of time, alternatives weren't even available. And, and now some of that muscle memory has, has been kind of set. And you're starting to see more and more uh, transactions happening, for example, uh, in e-commerce or something related to that. Uh, I think for what it's worth that we're going to be an omni-channel industry for the foreseeable future. And I think that's a great thing. I, I, I want to hear you expand on that because we, we, you and I talked the other day and you know, you really mentioned the very important part of the physical part of the business. Like you need to actually go and, and pick up the cannabis and, and mm -hmm. that's always going to be, um, you know, a very important part. So can you t expand more on that intersection between the physical and digital? Yes. Yeah, so there's a concept that at least I learned, uh, I think it was from uh, uh, Travis Kalanick at uh, Uber, who would always talk about uh, the intersection of atoms and bits. And if you think about it, it's not as if uh, we will ever be able to download weed to our brains. Like that's just <laughs> not possible, right? So that means that there will always be a physical component to this industry. And, and so recognizing that, you know, this industry's experience fits and starts and profitability in some cases has been um, elusive. There is still this ground truth that there is this physical nature to the industry. And so you have to think in, in, in that context. And I think that, you know, that, that, that has several conclusions. One is that technology can't solve everything, but at the same time, uh, technology can make things better where you know it's already a very physical world that you have to work in. When you talk about how you invest, um, you know, and I think any financial advisor, you know, will tell you diversification, like make sure you diversify um, and, you know, don't put all of your um, eggs in one basket type thing. In an, an industry like this that is so highly regulated um, and that varies from state to state, how do you how do you handle the diversification of your portfolio in this environment? Right. So a couple of things. One is uh, we are stage agnostic. Our thesis behind that is that when every uh, state is its own 
industry for the time being. They're each on their own separate development paths. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to hem yourself into just one stage of company. Um, and then I guess the other point about this diversification concept is that I guess we're of the view that talent is actually the most dear asset in this industry. And uh, that changes every day. And uh, I'm a huge proponent of anyone that wants to get involved in the industry. Uh, I'm happy to speak with. Um, but the, the reality is that it is, uh, it is actually at the margin still difficult to get really great talent uh, coming into companies. And uh, I think the result of that is that diversification can actually be a detriment to you. Because um, if you are of the, of the view that talent is scarce, then you could also maybe imagine that there aren't as many great companies as there are just average companies. So for us, we try to limit the number that we invest in and uh, go very deep in terms of the, what we understand about the business and how potentially we could help improve it. You you mentioned something and I want to, I want to build off it on, and I think because we don't talk to a lot of investors, we're talking to a lot of CEOs and stuff. It's it's how regulation is affecting where you're investing, especially with each state at a different level of maturity on this. And because it's so fragmented um, in this way, you know, what kind of can you expand more on just the implications that has for an investor that that's following the space? Like, you know, there's really you know good mature operations occurring on the West coast. But when you look at like a market like New York, you know, how are, how are you viewing, you know, those versus each other? I think, okay. Fundamentally there's, there's, you're going to be limited in terms of your potential market size based on kind of the rules of the game, which is to say that um, for each market, the rules are set, but the problem is those rules change over time. I liken it to you're playing chess, but people keep adding pieces to the board. And by the way, some of those pieces you've never even seen before. And oh, by the way, <laughs> the rules of the game might change halfway through. So it does make it very difficult. You have to be a very first principles based as far as whose problems are you, the company solving and how repeatable, how, how often is that problem being experienced and, and how much confidence can we get that a particular team has what it takes to continue to iterate and solve more and more problems that the industry faces? Because Lord knows there's plenty of problems to solve in this industry. Well, going, going back to what you, you kind of talked about at the beginning of the call was that you know it, it does federal legalization then solve that for you does that make it uh, more inviting for investors to want to get involved because it's going to be less of that you know state by state kind of difficulty within the rules or is there more of an opportunity now because you can get in earlier i mean yes the opportunities are now because as you can see with publicly traded companies that let's say the canadians would love to be involved today not when it's legal today um, so anyone that has the opportunity to be involved today, you kind of need to, because in the meantime, others are, and you would be kind of losing out on the opportunity to, let's say, solve someone's problems because someone else is going to do it on your behalf. 
Um, so, so I guess that's, that's one point I wanted to make, uh, and I've lost my train of thought again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Cause I have another question for you. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about the, the siloed models and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, and how it has lent itself to this MSO model, which is hugely capital, capital intensive, um, and does this mandated vertically integrated model still work? I mean, it's it's we're playing within the, the rules of the game as they are now. Mm. But as you said, like new chess pieces are being added to the board, new rules are being added. How sustainable is the MSO model? <laughs> um, I don't think it makes any sense uh, to be fully vertically integrated, uh, in the long run, there's no press, there's no, there's very little precedent for that in other industries. Um, I think there are some really interesting questions to ask though, because even in federal legal, uh, framework, it is still possible that it can be while technically legal, uh, practically impossible to move product from one state to another. Uh, there, it really is a function of how well developed each state's industry becomes on its own. And then what is the electorate base and their interest? Um, you know, would they prefer to try to protect, uh, local assets and businesses against the specter of say cross-border trade? And while, you know, you can't violate the constitution clause, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the commerce clause of the, the U S constitution, there are other industries where it becomes functionally difficult because certain rules or regulations are placed on companies that that make it very hard to import or, or export into a different state. So um, I guess the, the 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 challenge with this is that um, today, yes, vertically integrated companies seem to be the solution for today's set of problems. Uh, but I don't, I'm not convinced that that's, that's, that makes economic sense in the long run. And, and from an environmentalist perspective, I personally don't think it makes any sense to be growing indoors or I'm sorry, in, indoors. I mean, uh, especially in, in, in a period of time where we have really high energy costs, uh, obviously the water and, and, and energy impact that, that has is enormous. So I think that this will get solved over the long run, but I don't think there's going to be any kind of near-term movement on this. I'm, I'm interested because you came from, you know, the, the CPG space within the investing, you know, you're talking about grocery and Amazon and stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you're, you guys are evaluating, you know, companies that you want to invest in, how important to you is, is branding? Um, or, or are these companies trying to build a brand right now and build that consumer loyalty? Is that something that, you know, you see as being valuable? Uh, yeah, a couple things. One is, and I'm probably going to get flagged for this, but we actually don't believe that there are, uh, that there exists very strong evidence for brand like affinity. I fully recognize that there are uh, brands uh, out there, particularly in States like California that do have a following. Uh, but that, is not enough evidence in our opinion. In fact, we have evidence otherwise that would suggest that most consumers are more prioritizing price and convenience. Uh, functionally, what this looks like is someone walks into a dispensary and says, I have 50 bucks, what can you sell me? And not, 
I must have this brand or I'm walking out the door. It just doesn't really happen in the real world. So that's kind of one point on, on brands. Um, and then as far as loyalty goes, also, I think a lot more excitement in loyalty than is actually deserved. I actually believe that, let's say, for example, loyalty points are a waste of money. You're, you're discounting the people who are already the most likely to walk into your store for what? And, and, and this, you, you don't see, you know, Walmart's providing, oh, you, you've, you've, you've arrived for your 10th time this month. Here's a discount. No, it's everyday low prices. So I, I just, I don't, I don't agree with some of the current mentality around these things, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. <laughs> Well, well, you answered my next question about the myths about of uh, or the perceived myths about consumer loyalty programs. Um, are there other misconceptions or, uh, you know, because to me, that is um, there are a lot of companies, you know, going after the the loyalty consumer and and, you know, bringing retail technologies to that to the fore on that front. Um, are there other ways that you swim against the tide? If that's even a fair thing to say, if it's not fair, tell me it's not fair. I used, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I used to say that we were different because it was a common trope to say that there's no good data in cannabis. I actually, I haven't heard that as much lately. Um, for the record, there's great data in cannabis. You just have to spend the time to understand where to look and and how you can maybe stitch that data that exists separately together into one cohesive story. Well, but, it costs money and it costs talent and it costs yes. like you can't, it's not something that you just like email away for or something, you know, like you need, like you said, the, the engineers, the talent, the people who can, who can actually interpret this data that's coming through. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in a, in a, in a very specific example. Um, so we have, uh, and, and for shameless plug for portfolio company, um, happy cabbage analytics, um, which you can think of as uh, an outsourced squad of data scientists, which is to say that typically most dispensary operators don't have the capability to uh, hire a data scientist, let alone manage one, and let alone know, okay, now we've got one on the team, now what do we do? So um, I guess my point here is that there is, it's like the, the Zoolander, like the files are in the computer. It's like <laughs> the value is in the data. You just need people to help you unlock what you already have. Let's start to look down the future in a hopefully post-COVID world. You know, where do you want to see the industry progress in the next, you know, one to five years? Information needs to flow better in this marketplace. I think many companies are aware that their data is valuable. I would go one step further and say that your data is even more powerful if it's coupled with other information that can help you run your business better. So what we envision is the development of a data ecosystem that is actively being stitched together today, by the way, but that will help someone who needs information to do their job better by, by uh, providing a channel by which they can get that information easily. There are some solutions out there for this right now. I would argue that each of them, because of their own development history, has kind of their own um, things that they bring to the table, but also a certain rigidity that uh, doesn't serve as many people as it actually could. 
and I, I, one one area we haven't touched on yet is um, the political side of everything. And I'm wondering, you know, there, there's cannabis legislation that's being uh, debated in, in the Senate right now. You know, how pessimistic or how optimistic are you when it comes to to looking at it? Because I think everybody's like, yeah, we want to see progress. We want to see the more act. We want to see safe banking or some type of federal, you know, thing happen. But, you know, more on how you're feeling about it. Like, do you feel any kind of optimism for where we're at legislative wise? Not really. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And not not, not, not in the near term. (laughs) I guess, you know, if it didn't get done by now, Biden will be heading into a re-election campaign. And if it didn't get done by by now, very unlikely, in my opinion, to get done ahead of that. After that, sure, there's higher likelihood, I think. And in the meantime, as I said, each each of these uh, sub-industries are going to just continue to grow. Maybe certain companies aren't going to continue to be the leaders. um, And that's a natural function of, of, I think, a well... Uh, developing market. Uh, but but yeah, as far as near-term prospects, I guess I, I'm not quite as optimistic as others. I will, I, I can throw out the shameless plug that everyone does for the Safe Banking Act. But yet again, it, it doesn't seem like there's enough traction there to, to really hang your hat on. Another thing I just wanted to touch on also is you had mentioned... Um, environmentalism. Um, and just thinking about the fund in general, what impact do you want you or your fund to have on the industry and, and society at large? That's a big question, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think it's an easy answer though. We want to level the playing field with technology. We believe that this industry is for the many, not for the few. And in order for the many to be successful, each in their own rights, with their own entrepreneurial spirits, they have to have the right tools to be able to run a business. It's hard enough in this industry to run a business, especially if you were uh, of a community that was underrepresented or otherwise severely impacted by the war on drugs. The odds are against you, but that doesn't mean that you can't win. It just means that you need to be smart. And that's what we are hoping to capitalize with the types of investments that we make. Ian, is there one part of the industry that you think doesn't get enough coverage? Um, I know you've brought up technology several times in, in this conversation, but you know, it, like if you were going to open up the, the New York Times and see on the A1 that they have a cannabis story that's going to hit on something that you, you, know, you think has previously gone unreported, you know, what would that topic be? Unreported. Or underreported, you know? Yeah. And, and is it that technology aspect of it? Well, yes. I mean, one, two, and three are definitely technology and not only just what technology companies exist, but let's, let's think about it from the perspective of the data scientists and the programmers who are actually trying to build these companies from the code perspective, they have their own challenges and, and there's a community, I think, potential to develop and the sharing of best practices as it relates to technology. Look, we ourselves have stubbed our own toes um, trying to build our own data asset. And, and I think what we offer potential investments is that we, we have that empathy. We understand what it's like to try to build these things. 
And so we can hopefully guide you in a way that's, that's, that you will make less mistakes than maybe we have. And so I guess that's, that's a, a really big point. The other thing that I think is under reported today, but will, will become, uh, let's say much more important over the long run is on what you call, um, in-stream metronomy of vape, which is to say, that, you're so definitely going to need to, <laughs> go a little bit to define that. that. Yeah. Give us some layman's on yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so let me break it down. Uh, today, what happens with testing of vape? Uh, the cartridge is tested, the oil is tested, but no one is actually testing the vapor trail when you're actually using the product. The problem here is that the vast, vast majority of the componentry for these types of vapes are made in China. And uh, not throwing stones at any countries, but when you don't have a really solid control over your supply chain, you risk things that you might not even know are, are there in, in, in the componentry, zinc, other kinds of heavy metals. And I personally think that this is a, a shoe that will drop. This is a good example of the kind of thing that you think you want federal legalization, but it doesn't take that much research to see the FDA's opinion on vape as a category as it relates to nicotine. And so, you know, I, I guess I think of our job as to not only find great investments, but also to avoid landmines, because we all know there have been many of those already, and there are going to be more in the future, I guarantee you. So is that something that you think would, you know, before COVID would have happened, there was the, the vape crisis basically going on where, what is it, vitamin E acetate was, was being found in, in a lot of products and stuff. Was this something that you think would have been brought to the forefront more, more quickly if it hadn't been for COVID? Or is this something that's just going to take time to, to get into people's uh, mentality? That's a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, it will be something that the, if, if indeed we have federal legalization, and I, I think we will eventually, the FDA is going to be involved in this. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the large corporations outside of the industry today are very interested in driving a wedge on these types of things. Another point here, and I'm probably not making any friends on this, but uh, dabs are, in my opinion, something that we as an industry need to talk more about and maybe potency writ large. I can speak from personal experience within my own family that I know people who have been deeply impacted negatively by using dabs, particularly when uh, young, like under the age of 21. And it, again, it doesn't take that much research to see that there, it, there, there is some evidence that you can uh, uh, incur higher likelihood of psychotic events, particularly for people with bipolar disorder, and I think this is really important to talk about. And it's something that to me feels like nobody wants to talk about now, but my job as a risk manager is to talk about these things. The other point maybe that I could add is uh, not talked about things uh, is, is intellectual property, generally speaking. That's something that kind of going back to what I said at first about you don't, you don't improve what you don't measure. You also are unlikely to be really concerned about 
patents that exist, for example, if you come from a world where that, of course, that would never matter. But in the world outside of cannabis, patents are real, intellectual property is real. And so I think that's another conversation that, that this industry needs to think about as well. Well, this has been fascinating. And I can imagine a lot of our listeners um, will want to reach out and maybe learn more. So where can people find you? Sure. You can find us at deltaemerald.com. And I also, from time to time, write a uh, execs only newsletter, uh, which can be found on Substack. That'd be deltaemerald.substack.com. It's called the Delta Dispatch. So that's it's kind of the two places you can look for us. Well, and we'll make sure to definitely put a link in our show notes so that uh, people can find you really easily. Um, Ian Dominguez, Portfolio Manager of Delta Emerald Ventures. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again to Ian Dominguez, Portfolio Manager of Delta Emerald Ventures, for joining the Green Rush today. Um, as we said, you can find out more about Delta Emerald by visiting their website, www.deltaemerald.com. And as always, thanks for listening to the Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or at on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com and make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter as well as subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.